0: Welcome to the Rebel Alliance Media Podcast. And today it's not Pootie Tang and the post-mail pirate Nate. No. So who am I, you ask? Well, it's Dave the audio guy, the sound wizard that makes them sound so good. Now, being up here in Canada, the great white north, the weather is sometimes unpredictable, and in spite of their valiant efforts, Nate and Chris were unable to make it to the studio. So in their place, we offer you today free of charge one of nate's recent advent sermons from crossroads alliance church here on the outskirts of beautiful ingersoll ontario and if you like this one well there's more where it came from just visit crossroadsac.org sermons so here's nate talking about expectations me into in ministry he said that all anger and frustration in life is born out of unmet expectations right I have an expectation on Sunday mornings that we leave the house sometime between eight and eight thirty a.m. That's my expectation. Now, children have arrived since then and made that expectation difficult. And sometimes unmet expectations lead to frustration and anger. And so, this morning we're, we're, we're about ready to go. It's like twenty after eight. You know, we got ten minutes before. Uh, you know, Dad's blood begins blood pressure begins to rise. So we got some time, and all we have to do is we have to put Judah into his church clothes out of his onesie, and so Colleen pulls him out of the Jolly Jumper and only to discover that the largest amount of poop that anybody has ever seen has made its way all through the onesie. And so I'm upstairs brushing my teeth, and of course I hear Quinn, uh-oh, Daddy, Daddy, <laughs> I don't know what she wants. I just assume she wants me to come down. I'm just brushing my teeth. Hold on a second. Uh-oh, daddy. Okay, so something's going on downstairs. And so you go you go downstairs and I mean there's poop everywhere. There's just there's poop everywhere. There's no nice there's no polite way to say that from the pulp, but there's poop everywhere. And so Colleen's got about 10 different wipes all kind of flying and I'm trying to catch them and make sure they're not going anywhere right and we're wrapping up all the poop into the onesie and then you bag it and you're like I'm just going to deal with that later and of course there's there's so much that you have to get the bathtub fired up right so then the bath so Judah gets gets carried like this over to the bathtub and then sprayed off and I'm trying to clean up everything that got flung everywhere So we clean him up and bring him on over to the carpet, and Colleen's putting him in his church clothes, and everything seems fine. And and right as you're like, okay, I think you know, blood pressure's starting to come down, everything looks good, and you look over at Quinn, who's gotten into the purse and has lipstick (laughs) everywhere. And so it's, you know, it's it's now twenty to nine. You're kind of looking and you're going, unmet expectations, right? Frustration and anger and all those kinds of things. But Christmas can do that to us on a larger scale. Right? Those are those are just the, the joys and adventure of parenting, <laughs> right? That happens uh, when we got into the car, Colleen said, Well, it's Sunday, what else do we expect? This, this just happens every Sunday, but at Christmas time that can happen at a much larger scale. At Christmas time, we watch movies where families with relational turmoil and relational conflict come together, and around the Christmas season, with the spirit of the holiday, and because of Christmas joy and all that kind of stuff, all their family tension boils away, relationships get mended, everybody is happy, the turkey comes out perfect, right, all of these things. And for those of us who live in the reality day-to-day of strained relationships, sometimes We can bring those expectations into our Christmas experience. This will be the year that things won't be awkward with my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister or my siblings or my in-laws or or whatever the case may be. And we feel like this is the Christmas where those relationships are going to get, get fixed, where that family member is going to say the thing that they've never said to me before. They're not going to say the things that they always say to me. Or, or sometimes we think that we, we just got that perfect gift that's going to make my spouse's heart melt in my hands. It's going to be so perfect. And then we get there, and it just it doesn't happen. It happens in all the Christmas movies, and so we expect it, but we don't always get it fulfilled the way that we were expecting it to. And so Christmas can come with all of its own kinds of tensions and difficulties. And this is why so often, once the holidays are over... You have a whole lot of people who end up drowning their sorrows in Boxing Day shopping because Christmas Day didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to. And one of the reasons it didn't end up the way that they wanted it to is because their expectations for what was going to make them happy, their expectations for what was going to fix their broken relationships, their expectations for what was going to mend their hearts at Christmas was something other than what God intended. God sent us the gift that will do all of those things. Fix broken hearts, mend broken relationships, bring lasting joy and satisfaction and happiness. All of those things were meant to be fulfilled by Jesus, not by gifts or turkeys or family time or the rightly worded Christmas card. And so unmet expectations are are, are what we have to try to avoid. And so what I want us to do as we work our way through this series, and specifically today as we look back on Christmas past, what it looked like for people who anticipated Jesus coming to fulfill all of these things, I want us to get focused on the one who's actually going to make this Christmas meet all of your expectations because you're expecting the right things and you're placing your expectations on the right person. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter nine. And this will be a familiar passage of scripture to most of us. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a a soft cover blue Bible in one of the seats in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. That's our Christmas gift to you. But turn with me if you can to Isaiah chapter nine. So I'm gonna start in verse two, but just note from verse one It's talking about the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee. That's going to be important a little bit later. But verse 2 starts, "...the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them his light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest." As they are glad when they divide the spoil, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, at the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is where it's going to start to get familiar, but all that background is important, so so keep that in the back of your minds. Verse 6 is where it's going to start to get familiar. For unto us a child is born. We just sang these lyrics. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." It's the word of the Lord to us this morning, and we're going to kind of look at that. This is one of the, the main promises that we, one of the main verses that we look at at Christmas time is a promise that came hundreds of years before Jesus laid in the manger. Here's the big idea. Here's what I want us to kind of wrap our minds around today as we look into Christmas past. For a long time, the people of God were waiting with faithful anticipation that God would send his rescuer. I'll read that again. For a long time, the people of God were waiting with faithful anticipation that God would send his rescuer. So this is where I want you to just mentally travel back, if you will. If you don't have a great imagination, we'll try to help you along the way, but just mentally travel back with me, if you will. That there were thousands of years prior to Jesus arriving on the scene where the people of God were waiting with anticipation that God was going to send somebody who was going to right all the wrongs that they saw in the world. You can think about the injustice and the evil that you've experienced in your own life. Injustice from being mistreated all the way to losing somebody before their time and all the things in between. The evil that's done to you or the evil that you experience because of the broken world that we live in. You can imagine that. And so imagine alongside the people of God who had seen people killed, had seen nations come in and take over, they'd seen their people taken off into exile, they'd seen the, the, the cycle of apostasy that took place in the book of Judges as, as uh, the people of God turned back to God and then turned away from God and then turned back to God and then away from God, started worshiping idols and turned back to Yahweh and started worshiping idols and turned back to Yahweh. As they watched all of this unfold from generation to generation through all of the stories, they're waiting and they're anticipating a time when God would send his rescuer who's going to end this cycle of misery and usher in a time when everything was gonna be set right. That's what the people of God were anticipating, and they hadn't seen him yet, and they didn't know what he was going to be like yet, but they, they, they trusted that God was going to send him. And the book of Hebrews actually talks about what faith looked like in the Old Testament. It looked like just trusting the promises of God, right? It says that Abraham trusted that God was going to give him a son, and in trusting in that promise, it was counted to him as righteousness, that he had faith in God, Faith in the promises of God. And so that's what faithfulness, as one of God's people looked like in the Old Testament, before Jesus had come onto the scene, that's what faithfulness looked like, is trusting that God was gonna make good on this promise. I'm gonna send someone. A child will be born. And on his shoulders, the government will sit. Of the increase of his government, his reign, there will be no end. He will be mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. That's him. That's who you're waiting for. And so for a long time, the people of God were waiting with faithful anticipation that God would send his rescuer, rescue his people from all the things in the world that threatened them, their own sin, the outside nations, the the darkness of the world around them, whatever it was that threatened them, he would send somebody who would save them, rescue them from that So we're going to look at some of these promises. Some of the promises that these people, long before Jesus arrived on the scene, would have put their faith in. The promises that would have been precious to them as they lost loved ones, as they experienced darkness, as they experienced injustice, as they experienced poverty, as they experienced the unmet expectations in their time, much like the unmet expectations we experienced in our time, what were the promises that they clung to with faithful anticipation? What were they? Okay, so, the promise of the rescuer was, first and foremost, he will save the world from evil. He will save the world from evil. If you have that Bible, turn back with me, if you will. Keep your, keep your thumb in Isaiah because we're going to go back there. But turn all the way to Genesis chapter 3. And this is a, a passage of scripture that we know. We talk about it often. Genesis chapter 3 Adam and Eve have sinned. The world has descended into darkness. Disobedience has brought sin and death into the world. Um, Paul is really clear as he teaches about this that sin and death had not entered the world until Adam's disobedience, and then sin enters the world at that time through one man, through Adam. And what happens is, in verse 14 of chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, God begins to dole out the curses that were a result of sin. A result of the disobedience, right? That Adam was now going to have to toil to work the land. That Eve was going to experience pain and childbearing. And in verse 15, he, he's cursing the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You know the, the, that in eternal struggle that almost every good story talks about? This, the struggle between good and bad, light and darkness? It's all right here and it's part of the curse that God places on the serpent. I will put enmity between your offspring and his offspring. In other words, God and God's people will be at war with Satan and his minions forever. That's what that verse is saying. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so that promise is that you will deliver a wound. This is talking to the serpent. You will deliver a wound to his heel, but he will deliver a wound to your head, a fatal wound to your head. This is the very first promise. It's what scholars and and, uh, theologians call a proto-evangelium, the the pre-gospel. It doesn't talk about Jesus or atonement for sin or any of that kind of stuff. It just promises that one day somebody's gonna come and eradicate evil. And good and bad, light and darkness, goodness and evil will battle until that time when he comes and he crushes the head of the serpent. That's the promise. So the promise is that he will save the world from evil. He's going he's to right the wrong that came into the world as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Second promise is that he will be a blessing to the entire world. You're in Genesis chapter 3. Move on to Genesis chapter 12. Just move ahead a couple of chapters And in Genesis chapter 12, we see God continuing to make promises, and here we see a man named Abram. Genesis chapter 12, I'll start in verse 1 just to give you the context. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation.'" And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, now get this, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this promise, right, you you can see how this promise is starting to build for the people of God. The very first promise, he's going to come and he's going to set things right. He's going to destroy evil. Now he's also, he's not just going to destroy evil, but he's actually going to be a blessing. He's going to usher in good things for the people of God. Because through now Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So this is the promise, right? The rescuer. He's going to save the world from evil. And he's going to be a blessing to the entire world. Number three. He will put an end to injustice and oppression. You can go back to where you were in Isaiah and just back up a page, depending on the size of the font of your Bible. And in Isaiah chapter 7, we see in verse 14 of chapter 7, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. I want you to, we we generally know that verse. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The, The virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. We know that because Matthew quotes it, and so we know that. But verse 15 is important. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. He will eat curds and honey, which is the diet of peasants. People hearing this promise would have understood that to mean that he won't be born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He won't be born high and lofty. He won't be born in a palace somewhere. He's going to be born and he's going to eat the diet of peasants. He will know poverty. That's what this verse is telling us. And then, if you jump ahead to chapter 9, remember I told you that the, the verses, so that chapter 9, which we read to start, verses 2 to 5, I told you those are important. Those The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. That promise is to the people of Galilee. Galilee was, was not only a very poor area, but it was also a, an area of, of dark history. Whenever any invading army would come to conquer Israel, they would march on northern Jerusalem, which means that they would have had to come, just because of the way the water and the mountains are, they would have had to come through northern Israel. They would have had to come down through the, the place in the, of Galilee to get to an area where they could attack Jerusalem. And so throughout, and you can look through the history of, of the Old Testament, every time there was an invading army came through Galilee, And you can imagine what an invading army does to the people who are in the land that they're occupying as they go to march to attack and siege Jerusalem. You can imagine that there would have been death and there would have been pillaging and there would have been all kinds of... Horrible stuff happening to the inhabitants of Galilee as they went down. And if they were successful, of course, then the, the whole land would be in occupation. If the invading army wasn't successful, they would have had to make their way back through Galilee. And the only thing that's worse for a community than an invading army is a, is a retreating army who's all upset that they just lost a battle. And so Galilee had this dark and horrible um, history of, of oppression and, and danger and, and death and bloodshed. And the promise here is that the people who have walked in darkness, right? Galilee is mentioned, the verse before, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. That's what this is talking about. That that bloody history of Galilee is what it's talking about when it's talking about the the tramping warriors and the battle tumult and the the garments rolled in blood and all that kind of stuff. And it's there that we get verse 6, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. And then get this, on the throne of David, this is end of verse seven, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And so the promise now is that the rescuer is going to come. He's going to save the world from evil. He's going to be a blessing to the entire world and he will put an end to the injustice and the oppression that the people of Galilee and that the people of God had been experiencing throughout their lives. So you can start to see how the expectations, the anticipation, the expectations of this Messiah are getting hung one by one. So he's going to be somebody who's going to destroy evil. He's going to be somebody who is a blessing to every family on the earth. He's going to be somebody who's going to put an end to injustice and an end to oppression. So we see these promises mounting as the people of God live on through the generations. Well, what else? He will establish a kingdom and he will reign over it forever. So we see that. Of the increase of his government, government is the language of kingdom, it's the, it's the language of civilization, it's the language of a king ruling over people. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So this is a kingdom that will be set up forever on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and hold it with righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore. And so now the expectation is not only is he going to put an end to injustice and an end to oppression, but he will establish a kingdom and he's going to reign over that kingdom forever. You see how the expectations for this Messiah are mounting over the generations. And as they, as they uh, tell their children of the promises that have come before them, as they're reading through the Torah and the writings of Moses, and then adding to it as, as Isaiah begins to prophesy, and, and in the generations that lead on as they begin to study the scrolls and the prophecies of Isaiah, these promises getting added on to the expectation of this Messiah, the one who's going to come and right all the wrongs. Lastly, he will save his people from their sins through a substitutionary death. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Chapter 53, verse 4, verse 4 here, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Look at the expectations being heaped onto this rescuer. He's going to bear our griefs. He's going to carry our sorrows. Who wouldn't want that? Yet we esteemed him and stricken him, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him such a beautiful verse. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jump down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the expectation now of this Messiah, the expectation of this rescuer, is not just that he's going to save the world from evil. Not only is he going to be a blessing for every family on earth, not only is he going to put an end to injustice and oppression and establish a kingdom and rule over it forever, but what it means for the individual is that he's going to save the individual from their sins by taking their place, right? On him, the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. By his knowledge— make many to be counted righteous because he will bear their iniquities so this rescuer the one that god promised the one that for generation to generation imagine yourself as a mother or as a father who is teaching your children about the messiah who is going to come about the rescuer who is going to come and imagine imagine when you're talking to your kids now right even even right now i don't know how many of you have started celebrating at at, uh, at the house we, we started a little bit later. I think um, our Christmas decorations went up the second week of November this year. I think last year they went up on October 31st. So we're, we're getting a little bit better. Um, but anticipation begins to build, right? We already have Quinn's gifts underneath the, the tree. She already looks at them and she knows that we're waiting to open those up on Christmas Day. The anticipation is building, right? I'm trying to teach her a little self-control. <laughs> and And so the anticipation is kind of building it. But what do they always ask, right? In a car ride, they ask, are we there yet? Right, Quinn right now is asking, can I open it today? Every morning she gets up, she points to the tree, she points underneath, is today the day? She's wondering, no, today's not the day. We still have to wait. Imagine the children who'd be asking their parents, when is God going to send the rescuer? When are we gonna see him? Will it be when you're alive, dad? Will it be when I'm alive? Will it be when my children are alive? When is it going to happen? And for generations, the promise has been, has been handed down to their kids, teaching them to trust God. And the kids probably asking the really tough questions that I know our kids ask us, right? They ask us tough questions. They ask insightful questions. And those kids would be asking, well, do we know that he's actually gonna come? How long have we been waiting? These would be the questions rolling in from the kids and the parents trying to instill faith and trust in God in their children. No, trust the rescuer. Trust God. The rescuer is going to come. He's going to come. We don't know when. We don't know when, but we trust God. Imagine instilling that in your kids. Well, you can imagine we're a Christian church, so spoiler alert, the rescuer is Jesus. And we know that and so I want us to walk through all of these things because here's the problem. The problem is, is as we go through these things, and, and truth be told, I could see it in some of your faces. I could see it in some of your faces, and you thought, did Jesus, did Jesus do that? Did Jesus put an end to injustice and oppression? Did Jesus set up a kingdom? Is it here? What does that look like? So we believe that Jesus is the rescuer. We believe that he came And so let's go back through some of these things. Did Jesus save the world from evil? It's interesting. John 3, verse 8, says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The very, very first promise that we read as as part of this, he will save the world from evil, was was that promise I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. The serpent, right, will, will wound your heel and he will wound your head. He will crush your head. That's what we're looking for. We're waiting for somebody who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it wonderful that Jesus, when he came, the very cross that he was crucified on was lifted up on a hill mountain that was called the Place of the Skull, Golgotha, right? In the gospel accounts, it it, it takes the time to mention this. And you can see this happening throughout um, throughout the Bible, right? In Judges chapter 4, Jael rams a tent peg through the head of Sisera. You remember that? Remember that story? What is that giving you an image of? It's giving an image of evil's head being crushed. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's not quite as, as nice and, and ungory as the children's stories that we teach in Sunday school, but what happened to Goliath? A rock got sunk into his head, and then his head got cut off. Right? The head of the evil one destroyed by righteousness. In Judges chapter 9, there's a woman who drops the upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushes his skull. And so you see this imagery throughout the Old Testament. And then what happens when you get to the New Testament is that the the cross is, is erected right on what's called the place of the skull. Quite literally, Jesus is crucified on the skull crushing the head of the serpent it's a it's a beautiful image and it's a beautiful story that we see Jesus destroys evil at the cross and we're going to get there because I know there are questions about that because we all see evil around us we're going to get there he will be a blessing to the entire world well that that exact verse that we talked about in Genesis chapter 3 or Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 where it says through you through Abraham it says through you all the nations of the earth earth will be blessed all the families on the earth will be blessed what's interesting is that paul very distinctly just like in the gospel account that very specifically says oh and by the way that place that jesus was crucified it's called the place of the skull no big deal don't worry about that just like the the gospel writers took the time to include that paul in galatians takes the time to say hey you remember that promise to abraham in genesis chapter 12 on galatians chapter 3 he makes it very obvious, and he says that promise was to Abraham and his offspring, and by offspring, which he didn't use the plural form for, he used the singular, the offspring he was talking about, yeah, that's Jesus, right? Paul takes the time to say that in Galatians chapter 3. Who is the one through whom all the families of the earth are blessed? Paul says it's Jesus. So Jesus saves the world from evil. Jesus is a blessing to the entire world. What about injustice and oppression. Well it's interesting that the very verse that we are talking about, right, where it talks about the people in Galilee seeing a great light, we know that Jesus did the bulk of his earthly ministry, in fact almost all of his earthly ministry right around the Sea of Galilee. It was the people of Galilee that oppressed people, that people with the dark history full of bloodshed and tears and oppression and poverty where Jesus came and did the bulk of his ministry. And what was his ministry? It was healing. It was healing the wounds of the people. It was feeding the impoverished. It was binding up the broken hearts and setting captives free. That was the bulk of his ministry right there around Galilee. So Galilee, this place with the dark history, with the bloody past, becomes ground zero for the divine invasion when Jesus was going to come and begin to show and teach what the kingdom of God is going to look like. So Jesus comes and begins to alleviate injustice and oppression in and around Galilee during his earthly ministry. What about he will establish a kingdom and reign over it forever? We, we did a whole series talking about the kingdom of God, and so I, I could open this up and we would talk about it, right? Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus declared that he did bring the kingdom. He says, if it's by the power of God that I cast out demons, then you know the kingdom has come upon you. And he taught the disciples, right, that I brought the kingdom in seed form. It's the mustard seed kingdom that grows in. It's the the little bit of leaven that's worked through the loaf. He brought the kingdom and he brought it in seed form so that it could expand and grow around the earth. And this is the answer. This is the answer. So when we look at that and we say, okay, I, I get theoretically, kind of abstractly how Jesus saves the world from evil, but, but Nate, there's a ton of evil in the world still. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. A blessing to the, all the families on earth. Nate, I, I know a ton of families that haven't received any sort of blessing from Jesus. You're absolutely right. Put an end to injustice and oppression. Nate, I, I know a lot of people around the world still being oppressed still dealing with injustice you're absolutely right what about this kingdom thing he's he if he's reigning over a kingdom i don't i don't see it i don't see it right now the answer to all of that is understanding this idea of the kingdom because isaiah chapter 9 this is the promise notice that it's verse 7 of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Of the increase that suggests that when he comes, and this is why This is why, imagine that, all those years of all those parents answering their kids' questions, when is the Messiah going to come? When is the rescuer going to come? Can we really trust in God? And them saying over and over again, yes, we can trust God. Yes, we can trust God. Yes, the rescuer is coming. And then you wonder why when Jesus comes, a bunch of people start looking and saying, is this really the guy that we were waiting for? I still see injustice. I still see oppression. I still see evil. I still know families that haven't been blessed. What's going on? It's understanding this verse of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Peace didn't come in and, and, and drop on and cover the earth all at once. It came in in a way that this verse says it can increase to fill. Of the increase of his government, of the increase of peace, there will be no end. And so Jesus comes in, begins to eradicate evil, begins to eradicate oppression and injustice, Begins to bless the families that he comes in contact with, begins to build a kingdom, and hands that responsibility over to his people at the ascension. So when we look and we say, did the rescuer accomplish what he was supposed to accomplish? The answer is, he's continuing to accomplish it through his people. He didn't drop it in all at once, and that was never part of the promise. People missed the promise, and the promise was of the increase of his government, of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. He's going to come, he's going to start it, he's going to make it possible, and then he's going to hand the keys of the kingdom over to his saints to carry out the mission and bring it to the ends of the earth. That's what happened. And then the question is, well, how? How does he accomplish that? And that's number five. He will save his people from their sins Through a substitutionary death. Death. He made the whole thing possible by dying for your sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he saved us from sin in three different ways he saved us from the power of sin, he saved us from the punishment of sin, and he saved us from the presence of sin. The punishment for sin, right? We all know the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die because of the sin that we've committed, the treason that we've committed against God. But because Jesus died the substitutionary death in our place, the punishment of sin has been paid for. He also saved us from the power of sin. That means that the sin that's in our lives, the sin that we were enslaved to prior to Jesus dying for us, no longer has power over us. Paul, in fact, tells us that we're no longer slaves to sin, that now we are slaves of Christ, slaves to righteousness. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and 7. And so, he saved us from the punishment of sin once and for all, saves us from the power of sin, that's an ongoing, conquering the sin that's in our own lives, putting to death the sin that's in our own lives. Some of you might be here today and you might be experiencing this part. The punishment for sin has been paid for. You don't have to fear that anymore. That's a once-for-all declaration. That's what we just celebrated through our Reformation series, that God declared you not guilty. What a beautiful, wonderful thing. Punishment of sin paid for. But now you're experiencing the ongoing process of being freed from the power of sin. The sin that's in your life, the sin that's entangled you, the sin that's entangled your your lust or your greed or your selfishness or your self-centeredness, whatever it is that you're struggling with, it's sin that's been eradicated at the cross. You can overcome it. Jesus died so that you can overcome it. The Holy Spirit is involved in your heart, in your life, so that you can overcome that sin, so that the power of sin gets less and less all the time. And then the presence of sin we haven't experienced the eradication of the presence of sin, but there is a great promise that one day we will. And we ought to be working towards the uh, destruction of the presence of sin in our own lives and in in, in our own churches, in our own countries, in our own nations, and however far along that line, God is pleased to allow us to go. At some point we know, this side of eternity or that side of eternity, that God will save us from the presence of sin as well. And so it's by that a people who've been saved by the punishment, power and presence of sin, those people going forth and continuing the rescuer's work to rescue the world from evil, to bring blessing to the families of the earth, to eradicate injustice and oppression, to grow the kingdom and allow Christ to reign over it forever. And, by, and doing all of that by bringing the gospel, the good news that the rescuer died, the substitutionary death that invites you into the kingdom and invites you into this mission and invites you into what we're doing is the best news in the world. That's what Jesus being the rescuer means. So for a long time, the people of God were waiting with faithful anticipation that God would send his rescuer and what we celebrate at Christmas amidst all of the, the thinking about and meditating on all of those people who had their faithful uh, trust in God counted to them as righteousness, counted to them as faith in Christ, which uh, uh, gets his righteousness imputed, um, that anticipation, the other thing that we get, and this is, this is the, the joy of living this side of the cross, is being able to look at Jesus, look back at these promises, and know that God came through on that very first promise. That promise he made when the world was still on fire, when Adam and Eve had just sinned, just disobeyed. Imagine that. Imagine you're Adam and Eve for a minute. While we're we're playing this game of putting ourselves in in the the shoes of the people who lived long before Jesus, let's go back even further. Imagine you're Adam and Eve. And God said, don't touch the fruit, or don't eat the fruit. Don't eat the fruit. Don't eat the fruit. One, one job, <laughs> one thing, I'm telling you. See all these trees that are beautiful to look at and good for fruit? Eat and enjoy, and enjoy the animals, and enjoy the vegetation, and enjoy each other. I've given you companionship. I've given you everything you want. Just, just don't eat this one, Adam and Eve. Eat this one. It was harder to understand before I became a parent. Now I get it a little bit. Don't touch that. Nope, you can touch this. Don't touch that. You're touching it. So Adam and Eve, eat the fruit. And imagine if you're them. The one command that God gave you, don't eat the fruit. Now you've eaten the fruit. God comes down. They hide from him. What are you expecting? This is what you know. You know. You know, he created everything. He loves us. He walks with us, He's in communion with us, He's fellowship with us. He's provided all these things for us. He gave us one job to do, and now we haven't done that job. What's he going to do? Well, they hid, so they were afraid of what the answer to that question was going to be. They hid themselves, hid themselves, so that God, when God came down, He called for Adam, "Where are you? I'm hiding?" <laughs> Uh, not, not great at hide-and-seek. Adam wasn't. Where are you? I'm hiding. Oh, good. Gotcha. Instead of the wrath and the death that they deserved. Right, what was the punishment? If you eat that, you will surely die. And we know that there was, there was spiritual death that happened. We, we, we know that. But I'm sure. I don't think I'm stretching too far to say that they would have expected swift death and known that they deserved it. And instead, what did they get? A promise. One day I'm going to send somebody who's going to write everything that you've just wronged, who's going to bind up the brokenhearted, who's going to set captives free. All the horrible darkness that you've just let flood into the world, I'm going to send somebody who's going to fix it all. And from then on, people of God trusting that promise to be true. And we live on this side, Knowing that he made good on that very first promise. Jesus was sent to eradicate evil, to save us from darkness, to save us from sin, and God actually sent the rescuer just like he promised he would do. That is what gives us confidence in who the God is that we serve. He sent the rescuer. We know the rescuer. We are in relationship with the rescuer. And what we celebrate at Christmas is that through all those years of waiting, It finally happened. Jesus came. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's not just this this small thing that happened. It is something that has been building from the dawn of time through all of these pages and all of these experiences and all of these lives, building that whole time and that moment when Jesus was laid in a manger. The rescuer came as a baby. That's mind-blowing. It's amazing. And so often, we substitute that thought and that image for the materialism and the consumerism and the jolliness of what the world has made this holiday. No, no, no. The center is God's faithfulness through the ages. That's what we have to keep at the center of Christmas. So here's, the question is, how then, in light of all this, how then shall we celebrate? Keep Jesus at the center of all your Christmas celebrations. Eat turkey. Give gifts. Put up trees. Watch lights. Do whatever it is that brings you joy and happiness, and do that with family, and and eat chocolate. Do whatever it takes. But through all of those things, don't look at the thing that you receive, the thing that you open up on Christmas morning, or the chocolate that you're eating or the, the turkey or the the relationships don't look at that thing and think that that's what all of this is about use whatever that thing is that gift that that food that relationship whatever it is that we're celebrating look through that beyond that to the one who gave it to you look at who made that possible we give gifts because god gave the greatest gift at christmas we Eat together with family because God bound us together in Christ at Christmas. There are ways to look beyond the material things that we're enjoying this season to Christ. And that's how we ought to celebrate. That the the gifts and the stuffing and the pie, oh my, should not be the thing that our celebration and our focus expires on, but the thing that we look through and along to find Jesus keep christ at the center of your christmas celebrations because what we are celebrating has been brewing for millennia and we get the luxury of looking back at god's faithfulness through all those years let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your faithfulness we thank you that you made good on your promise we thank you that you sent Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the faithful witnesses that have come before us, who trusted that you would come through on this promise, trusted your goodness, trusted your faithfulness, even before they saw it fulfilled. And here we are living on this side of the manger and this side of the cross, and still so often we doubt or still so often We let these truths become insignificant compared to the material things that we see around us. Lord, we repent of that. And we pray that this Christmas, that we wouldn't be full of expectations about relationships and and food and, and gifts, that our expectation would be on Jesus. That he would be the one who brings wholeness to our hearts, that brings joy to our hearts, that brings purpose to our relationships. And we know that anticipating and expectations that are placed on Jesus will never let us down. So may Christ be at the center this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Rebel Alliance Podcast, where we equip you to engage culture through a biblical worldview. Please take the time to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Write a review and leave a five-star rating. If you would like to see all of our content, which includes podcast episodes uploaded to iTunes each Wednesday, and short videos about engaging culture released on Facebook each Friday, please visit us online at rebelalliancemedia.com. We love hearing from you, so if you have questions, comments, or would like to suggest episode topics, send us a message on Facebook or email us at info at Media.com. Thanks for joining us, and you may now consider yourself part of The rebellion.